Good morning. If you guys would like to uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking today at verses 4 to 10 primarily, uh, but I'm going to read the whole, the whole chapter, well, the whole start from the start of the chapter in a sec. It's been a little while since we've, we've been in the book of 2 Peter. Uh, the last time I preached on this was back in October, so your uh, memories may be getting a little fuzzy as to what we talked about. But if you do remember, and if you were there, uh, we were looking at the character of false teachers at the time. So we've been working through Second Peter and the gaps between Steve's series on, second on, sorry, on Timothy, and I'm hopeful that we'll actually get through it this year, uh, but we do have a little ways to go yet. And if you remember, this series was titled Remember and Beware, because if you were to boil down this whole, this whole book, this letter, to its core, that's what, what Peter is essentially trying to do here. He's trying to remind the believers of what they already know, and he's trying to warn them about those who are going to kind of come along and, and trick them or deceive them into thinking otherwise. And this is a bit of a weighty topic, because... We, we, when we like to talk about this, this sort of thing, and I, I know at least for myself, we like to talk about it in a, a theoretical sense, as if the idea of being seduced by a false teacher only applies to everyone else. This is kind of like some sort of theoretical thing that may happen, but, but in practice, it doesn't apply to my life. And just, just picture this for a second, if, if, if you would. You know, so you're here, or I'm here, listening to this, this weighty sermon. You know, maybe Steve is up preaching this sermon about, about change and, and, and how God, like these truths of God that call us to profound repentance, they're life-changing truths. And so I sit there and I listen to these life-changing truths and then I go home after the service and I'm reflecting upon these things. And so I fall on my knees before God and pray, I just hope that Steve Daw was listening to this sermon today. And we've all done this. I mean, maybe, maybe not Steve Daw in particular, but, uh, but, but, but we've all done this. We sit and we, we listen to something really profound and we sort of miss the point, right? Because we're like, well, that applies to that person who really needs to hear that today, not to me. Because I think the reason that we do this is, is as a general rule, being told to change is, is not fun. Like, I don't like to change, I, and I'm sure none of you do. We don't like to be inconvenienced by God's word. And what Peter is talking about here is, is relatively straightforward. This book is, is not a particularly complicated book. There's a few kind of weird illustrations, and we're going to get into one of these today. But what's kind of difficult about it is it cuts against everything that our culture stands for. It's in open opposition to, to, to those who want to preserve unity, quote unquote, at the cost of the gospel. And you may have seen uh, just a good example of this. In recent weeks, the Anglican Church had this big old meeting of like prelates or something like that. I don't even know what the technical term that they met, that they had was. And, and they were having this big fight about homosexuality in the church, basically, was what they were doing at this meeting. And what broke my heart when I, when, I, when, I, when I read about this whole thing is that it should never have gotten there. It should never have gotten there. I mean, the, 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 issue, the issue that they're talking about is only a symptom of the problem. Much like if I cough, 
you might say I have a cold. The problem is not the cough, the problem is that I'm sick. And in the same way, the fact that this was even up for discussion suggests that much of the quote-unquote church has, has long since abandoned the gospel. They've forgotten what they knew. And that's why we need to remember, because if we don't remember things, if we don't remember what the gospel is and what it stands for, then it's really easy to forget or to be deceived when someone comes along and tells us otherwise. If you don't remember that two plus two equals four, and someone comes along and tells you, well, it equals five, it sometimes does, but, never, but that's besides the point. Um, but if you, you might be deceived, right? You might be, you might be confused. So when we looked at this in October, we saw that Peter lists three characteristics of false teachers. The first of these, which was they deny the lordship of Christ. And, and here the denying is not sort of some sort of small doctrinal error. It's denying that God has lordship over their lives, over our lives. And this is a, on a fundamental level cuts against the gospel because remember we were slaves to sin before we knew christ we were slaves to sin we were in bondage and now we've been set free to do what to be slaves to christ it's not freedom in a in a sense that we go do what we want it's freedom to be in bondage to christ but that bondage is not hard that bondage is good for us and the language here is used is, is evocative of, of rising up. Kind of this idea that I stand there and say, I am free of you. Like, you do not control my life. But not only do false teachers reject God's authority over their own lives, they, they, they tell others to do the same. They lead others to do the same. And there's a willfulness here. This is not just kind of one-time failings. This is not, I'm struggling with something and I'm going to cling to Christ and, and you know, I keep failing, but I, I struggle to follow God. It's, it's more of a, I recognize that God doesn't want me to do this, but I don't really care. I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. And this is not just a words thing we saw. So, like, if I were to stand up here and and, and tell you that something is wrong, and then I go, by my life, live out that I don't believe that. So if I were to stand up here and, and preach to you that you know we're meant to be generous, and then you go and look at my life, and I'm the biggest Scrooge there is, then I'm teaching you, I'm leading you, but, but not with my words, but with my actions. And the second thing that we saw was that they exploit people for financial gain. So this was, should not be a surprising thing to us given how much the Bible has to say about money. In particular, money was one of Jesus' favorite topics. Um, that and hell were his two, two things he talked the most about. But there was an ed- there's an edge to this in that false teachers exploit their followers for money. So it's not just they're greedy or they, they're trying to accumulate it, it's they exploit their followers for money. And we asked, what does this look like? A- and I just gave the example at the time of, of the Christian book and conference thing that goes on around. And I'm not suggesting that, that all of these things are bad or that you should never go to conferences or never buy books. Um, those are th- many of these things are good things. And I think a, a few of Steve and Jeff and a few others are going um, to the States at s- some point here for the, is it TGC or T- T4G? Um, so these can be good things, but but, you know, if you throw in a few ministry donations in with this, like, there's a lot of money to be made in the Christian book and conference circuit. And, 
And sometimes it is the case that people are making a lot of money off of this. And I want you guys to know this is not an abstract thing we're talking about here. There, there are teachers that are out there and they're exploiting people for a lot of money. They're making a lot of money off of this. And then the final thing that we saw was, was that but false teachers will lie to justify what they do. They'll say whatever they need to say to justify their actions. And they'll twist the Bible to do this. Because, I, I, I don't know if you realize, but if I want to, I could make the Bible say anything I want it to. All I have to do is, you know, take a, flip through a little bit, um, take a few verses out of context, add them together into the sum of parts, build a theology around it, and ignore the rest of the Bible, and, and I, can, I can proof text my way to just about anything. And then when confronted by, about this, they will say things like, it's complicated. Not everyone can agree or point to other parts of the Bible that, that maybe you're not following as if that allows them to get off on the part that they, they are ignoring. You see, false teachers are not false teachers because everything they teach is wrong. And in fact, often most of what they teach is right. The most dangerous ones, they teach 99% good stuff. The problem is what the lies that they do teach can destroy us. And this, I would say, is a source of I know constant sorrow for me, and I think in general as elders, how easy it is for false teachers and their lives to work their way into the church. And, and sometimes, you know, it doesn't feel like the gospel is winning. And I just want to give you a quick example of this, how, how this has played out in mine and Amanda's life as, as a means of illustration. And just so you understand, this, is, this happens all the time. This is not some sort of vague theoretical discussion. So a little while back, Amanda had a, a particular author slash speaker that she um, was into and she was reading a fair bit of and listening to a fair bit. And I had listened to and, 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 and read a, fair, a, a little bit of this person too. And I, I remember being vaguely kind of not a particular fan um, of them at the time, um, but I didn't really have any good reason for not being a particular fan. It was just kind of... Um, I might have felt I might have just been grumpy or something like that on the day. But then as we, um, as I approached October, so last October, as, as I started really digging into Second Peter in preparation for, for the sermon and looking at the character of false teachers, well, I thought, well, what a good, a good way to do this, because, you know, if I'm going to ask you all to apply it, maybe I should apply it to my own life. So, so I started looking at, started digging into the lives of, of the people that I listened to and read and the people that Amanda listened to and read and asking the questions like, do I really know their character? Do I really know what they're about? Am I really sure that they're, they're solid? And so I did some digging and I did some praying and this particular teacher came up and I found out that in fact, this person was a false teacher. I actually used an example from um, in the ser pre previous sermon um, of a blog post that they wrote. And I think what really struck me about this was how easy it is for them to slip in. How easy it is. Because all it took was me just not paying much attention, just kind of sitting there. 
And, and I, was, I was not paying enough attention to what I was reading, I, I, I guess in that sense, but more importantly to what Amanda was reading in this particular case. Um, I was in general trusting too much just because they had said a few good things, I assume, well, they can't be so bad. You see, false teachers are everywhere and often they're very, very popular. They have millions of dollars in book sales. Thousands upon thousands go out to see their conferences. I mean, do you ever feel, because I don't feel that, that often it seems like they just get away with it. I mean, do you ever cry out to God and ask, is there any hope? Because it sometimes seems that when you stand up for the gospel, you end up in the minority. Does it feel like God's word is failing? And, and it's an answer to these fears and worries that Peter writes today. Or well, he didn't write today, he wrote a while ago, but he wrote, we're gonna read what he wrote today. So if you wanna turn with me to 2 Peter, chapter two, and I'm gonna start in verse one, though we're gonna be looking mostly at verses four to 10. So, 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when he, they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, marking them as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued lot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And may God add the blessing, his blessing to the reading of his word. The word for here, at the beginning of our passage, links this whole thing, so it links this whole thing back to what we looked at in October. More specifically, it links back our passage here to the statement that the judgment is actually living. It's personified. And what is happening here is Peter is addressing these fears that we talked about, namely that these false teachers are going to get away with it. And this is very compelling because, you know, often if you look around, it seems like the false ones are most successful. 
And if you were to measure truth by how popular something is, you might be forgiven for feeling a little disheartened. Or maybe even question whether or not we have the truth at all. Maybe we're the ones who are wrong, if everyone else thinks differently. And these people have massive ministries. I just used the example of myself and Amanda, um, because false teachers are everywhere. Steve and I were having a laugh, Steve, uh, Pastor Steve, about this the other day in this kind of resigned, ironic sort of way because, because I was preparing for my sermon, I was chatting with Steve, and, and one of these false teachers just kind of popped up in my life again. And, and it's, they're a bit like cockroaches, right? They just, you just can't get rid of them. Uh, they keep coming back into the life of the church. And so, you know, the, the same things would have been felt by, by Peter's audience. They would have been feeling the same things, that it feels like the, the truth doesn't go forth. It seems like the lies are increasing and, and more people are being deceived. If you read your Old Testament, you'll, you'll notice that God is often referred to as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who brought you out of Egypt and, and, and so on. And the reason for this is the Israelites were actually commanded to repeat to themselves and repeat to their children the stories of what God has done. The stories of what God has done. And why was that? It was so they would remember. It's so they wouldn't forget that God saved them before and therefore he's going to do it again. And we have here three examples of God's judgment and and then there's two examples of quote-unquote righteous people. And we'll get to that in a sec. But there's this idea here that Since God did this, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we would expect him to continue. We would expect him, if he he saved once, he's going to save again. And so the first example that our passage has, and we're going to look at today, is the judgment of the angels. So, this brings up some obvious questions. Who were these angels, and what did they do? And what Peter doesn't really elaborate on here, Jude goes into a little more detail in his letter. I'm just going to read it to you quickly, starting in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, the reference here is most likely to Genesis, and more specifically, the beginning of Genesis. If you looked in in Genesis chapter 6, and you don't need to turn there unless you really want to, uh, you'll see that there's these angels at the very start of the chapter who performed what what appears to be some sort of sexual misconduct with human women. Uh, And the exact nature of this sin is not completely clear, and exactly what happened is is, is a matter of great debate among scholars. And if you're really curious about this, I can give you an earful after the service. Uh, But what does seem to be clear is much like Adam and Eve, much like Adam and Eve, these angels stepped outside of the boundaries that God laid out for them. They saw God's creation and they said, mine. 
God, you do not have authority to set the boundaries on my life. You do not have the authority to tell me what's right and wrong. I want that. I'm going to take it. And so we have here an example of a spiritual being, or spiritual beings, plural, being punished for their sin. But more to the point, as both Peter and Jude say, they're being, they're being held until the judgment day. In other words, they didn't get away with it at all. Now, their final punishment hasn't come. I mean, our passage makes that very clear, that their final punishment still awaits them. They've not received yet the full measure of what they deserve. But there's this idea that they're restricted. They're under bondage. They're held awaiting judgment. And there's no question here that they're going to get it. It's a bit like being on death row. I mean, the punishment has not yet been dealt. But those imprisoned there know what's coming. I mean, make no mistake, judgment is coming. The second example that Peter gives is the judgment of the old world and the rescue of Noah. And we can read the account of Noah in Genesis 6 right after the story of the angels. So immediately after the angels, um, Genesis launches into how bad the world is, how wicked the world is, and then it starts talking about Noah. You see, the earth had become so corrupt and evil that God decides that everything must be wiped out. I'm going to start over. So he goes to Noah, who the Bible describes as a righteous man, and tells him to build a really big boat. And so Noah obeys. And then Noah and his family and all of the animals that God sends him get in the ark and God covers the world in water, destroys everything. It's wiped out. God judges the world. But not only does he judge, he saves Noah. And you have to realize here too, this this destruction of the world and the saving of Noah is an allusion to the very hope that we hold. That Jesus Christ saves and he's coming back to judge. This is a picture of that final judgment that's coming. And Steve talked about that last week. We saw the end of the story. And then finally, Peter gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you've probably, most of you have have heard this story. I think if you were to come up with an archetype for evil in the Bible, it would probably be these two cities. There might be a few other contenders, but this would be up there. These cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, were situated on the Jordan Plain near the modern-day Dead Sea. They were actually part of a group of five cities. There's five, there was five cities on this Jordan Plain area. Sodom and Gomorrah were the most prominent, but, but there was about actually five of them. We don't actually know for sure where they were, like exactly. We know roughly, vaguely, but we don't know exactly where they were because there hasn't been any compelling archaeological evidence that kind of accurately places them. There have been a few contenders and people argue about it a bit, but, but there's, not, there's not really any clear idea of where they were. But what we do know was the area was rich and fertile. In, in Genesis 13, the area is actually compared to the Garden of Eden. It was that good. And consequently, these cities 
were immensely wealthy and very evil. Genesis 18 actually describes them, uh, their evil, their wickedness as being like this great outcry. In other words, God could not ignore it. He could no longer ignore the screams of injustice that were rising up to heaven. And what follows is this famous story where Abraham pleads with God to spare the cities. And he asks God, what about the good people in the cities? What about those innocent people? Don't destroy the innocent along with the, with the, with the evil people. And so God agrees, well, okay, I'm not going to destroy it. If, 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 if there are 50 righteous people in the city, I won't destroy the cities. If you can find, if there are 50 righteous people there. And then Abraham comes back and says, well, what about 45? You know, if there was only 45, that's just five less than 50. Would you destroy an entire civilization for the lack of five righteous people? And, and so God says, okay, 45. And this continues until they get down to, to 10 people. God agrees to spare the city if 10 people can be found. But they can't. You see, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had given themselves so completely over to sin that, that there was nothing out of bounds. Nothing. Every sexual perversion, every injustice that you can possibly imagine, they did it. And in fact, when the two angels sent by God to rescue Lot go down to the city, the men of the city try to rape them. And so God rains his judgment down on the city in fire, destroying everyone except for Lot and his family. So then, who was Lot? Because he figures rather prominently in our passage. It has a fair bit to say about him. And I must confess, when I started studying 2 Peter, I was rather confused. Because having grown up in the church, I have had the advantage of being relatively familiar with these stories, these Old Testament stories. And I found it rather confusing how our passage describes Lot. As a righteous man. And I suspect more than a few of you were thinking similar things when you read this because the Old Testament doesn't exactly describe him in glowing terms. When we first meet Lot, he's hanging around with Abraham. He was actually a relative of Abraham's. And they have a problem. Lot and Abraham were both really, really rich. And there was not enough room in the area that they were in to contain all of their cows and sheep and chickens and whatever other animals that they happened to have. And their shepherds were fighting over access. So there was creating, it was creating tension between their servants um, over access to water and pasture and so on because there's only so much of this to go around. And, you know, this is a fairly big deal because if sheep don't drink, they don't do so well. So Abraham comes to Lot and suggests that, you know, in, in order to avoid fighting, because we're family and we, we, I, I, I want to, to be on good terms with you, why don't we split up? We'll, we'll go two different places. And he gives Lot the choice, which given the cultural context, Lot probably should have deferred back to Abraham. So this is our first mark against him. But he gives, Abraham gives Lot the choice of which place he wants to go, and Abraham says, I'll take the other. And there's two options. There's the lush region of the Jordan Valley, 
like the Garden of Eden. And then there's this stony, rocky country. Which one do you think Lot picked? (laughs) Thing was, in the lush, beautiful valley lie the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The next time we hear any great detail of Lot, there's a brief story in between where he gets captured by some soldiers and Abraham has to go rescue him. But the next time we really hear about Lot, he's offering the men of Sodom his daughters so they won't take the angels. He doesn't know they're angels at this point, but you know, it doesn't exactly sound like a, a winning formula here we've got. And then being led out of the city by the angels... He proceeds to get drunk and allows himself to be seduced by said daughters. I don't know about you, but Lot's not exactly a a great dude. (laughs) And yet, and yet this is what I find interesting. When the angels told him to flee the city, what did he do? He fled. And when they told him not to look back, he obeyed. Unlike his, his wife who looks back and, well, the story turns into a pillar of salt. Despite, despite his misguided, and I think that's probably the very least we could say about it, um, attempt to, to redirect the attentions of the men of the city, at least he understood that what they wanted to do was evil. And the more I think about this, and the more I thought about this, the more I realized that, you know, actually, we're not so very different from Lot. You know, we, we fail, often spectacularly. But as we saw last week, it's not our, our, our zeal or enthusiasm or how good we are that defines our faith. It's, it's the faithfulness of God. And we say that, we're all, we, we say that, that theme story, we're sinners, we're sinners, we're sinners, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Like, how often do we really think about what that means? Now, there were still consequences for Lot's actions. I mean, his selfishness led him to be in Sodom in the first place. And as our passage says, it actually tormented his soul. He didn't get out of there unscathed. And this is not just he, he lost stuff, he lost his wife and so on. It's, it's, he didn't get out of, there, out of there unscathed on a spiritual level. It caused him hurt. He gets drunk. And the children that that incident spawned are still fighting with the people of Israel to this day. How's that for a legacy? I mean, there were significant, and and I think we could probably say devastating, devastating consequences for his actions. But God still rescued him. And much like Lot, because I think when we surround ourselves by false teachers, because remember, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about false teachers. These examples 
are examples of God's judgment to illustrate what God's going to do to false teachers and how God's going to save his people from false teachers. When we listen to false teachers, when we allow ourselves to be surrounded by them, there are, are real and devastating consequences. There are. So, are you tormenting your soul like Lot? Are you surrounding yourself with lies? Do you ever feel powerless in the face of the popularity of some of these people? But you see, God is faithful. God is faithful to rescue his people. Because if, if God rescued Noah, if God rescued Lot, if God rescued Israel from Egypt, if God rescued David, if God rescued Jonah, if God rescued Daniel, then won't he do it again? But let's see things for what they are. I mean, when we listen to false teachers, we're a little bit like Lot hanging around in Sodom as judgment's coming. Because it's coming. Make no mistake. Just like Alistair Begg said, actually, it was very timely, um, providential. Um, I would even say the catechism we had today, you know, we don't get away with it. People are not going to get away with it. And there's a bit of an irony here because by their very nature, false teachers deny that judgment is coming. God doesn't care what I say. In fact, he must think I'm doing great because he's blessed my life. He's blessed my ministry. My church is getting bigger. More people are buying my books. How can you judge me? God is clearly on my side. It doesn't matter how much money I'm making off the gospel. You know, my personal life is personal. It has it no bearing on my message. None. Who are you to judge? Who are you? But their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows. The Lord knows how to rescue Steve. He knows how to rescue David. He knows how to rescue Don, John. He knows how to rescue Daniel. He knows how to rescue Jennifer. and to keep their unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority.
see we have this kind of somber rebuke or refutation that, that God does care. God does care. And judgment will come. This is not a question. And this is not going to be some sort of like slap on the wrist. Destruction is alive. It's alive and waiting. And this should cause us to pause. It really should. Because it should cause us to pause because God takes this very, very seriously. This is not some little trivial problem that we can ignore. Contrary to popular opinion, judgment is coming. But this should also give us hope. This passage should excite us. This should give us joy. We should read this and say, yes! Because the bad guys aren't going to win. We know the end of the story as Steve preached on last week. There is a throne. There is a throne in heaven. And on it sits one who is worthy. He is going to come in judgment one day and he will strike down the wicked with a word. Every knee, every knee is going to bow either in joy or in terror and declare that Jesus Christ is worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords. God is going to judge false teachers and they're not going to get away with the lies and injustices and death that they've been peddling for their profit. But more importantly, and and I really want to emphasize this, if you remember nothing else today, you should remember this. God will rescue his people. I mean, if God could rescue Lot, such an imperfect person from the midst of judgment falling down on an utterly broken and evil society, then he's going to do it again for us, for me, for you. Why? Because he is worthy. He's the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises are sure, his word never fails, and when he says he is coming back, he means it. So as we close, are you hanging around in Sodom as judgment approaches? Are you vexing your soul, submitting yourselves to lies being peddled by false teachers? Have you even asked the question? Can you even answer it? Have you ever looked? But, but, wherever you are in your walk with God, like, I want you to be encouraged today because judgment and justice are coming and God can rescue you no matter who you are and where you are and how long you've been there. Let's pray. Father God, you alone are worthy. You alone are just. You alone are the beginning and the end. You hold justice and mercy. And we thank you. You've promised you are coming back to judge the living and the dead and to call your people to you. Father God, we just pray now that you would point us to you.
that we wouldn't chase after lies and illusions, but we would chase after you and that you would rescue each and every person here. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.